the Jewish views on the blueprints for the Palace of Westminster Memorial, survivor Gina Turgle gives us her reaction. The Venus Project, photographer David Scheinman tells us about the art exhibition designed to highlight hereditary cancer. And Apples and Honey, we learn about the new nursery school that's opened in the grounds of Nightingale House Care Home. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Holocaust-denying former Grand Mufti of Jerusalem will not be making a publicised visit to the UK next week to meet MPs. Sheikh Ekrima Sabri, who has a history of anti-Semitic and terrorist-supporting views, was to be a guest of the pro-Palestine group Europal, reportedly to discuss the recent escalation in Jerusalem. Christians United for Israel UK launched a petition urging the Home Secretary Amber Rudd to ban him. It later emerged Sabri hadn't applied for a visa. In South London, an Orthodox synagogue hosted a Muslim cleric who's previously called for jihad against Jews in Palestine. Shakil Begg, together with Christian religious leaders, attended an event at Catford and Bromley Shore. Begg is head of Lewisham Islamic Centre and regularly preaches to thousands of members. The synagogue's leadership spoke of the imam's significant interfaith work, but community members asked why Catford and Bromley were associating with Begg, given his past comments. The Jewish labour movement has received a personal assurance from the labour leader Jeremy Corbyn that there'll be a new hearing into the conduct of the former London mayor Ken Livingstone, who's currently suspended from the party after he made remarks linking Adolf Hitler with Zionism. The JLM submitted a new complaint about Mr Livingstone because he repeated his comments and showed no remorse. 100 survivors of the Holocaust met the communities and local government secretary, Sajid Javid, to give him their thoughts on the design for the proposed Westminster Holocaust Memorial and Learning Centre. Mr Javid told them it was vital to have a UK focus for all, as he deplored recent incidents of anti-Semitism and said the past must not be airbrushed. There's a short list of 10 designs for the memorial. And finally, children and elderly residents became new neighbours after a Jewish nursery based on the campus of a Jewish care home opened its doors at Nightingale House in South London. The Apples and Honey Nursery has the aim of building relationships between older people and the children with activities including making soup and painting alphabet tiles. That's the news. Andrew has the sport. Thank you, Viv. Israel's football squad have endured a disastrous past week. Not only did 1-0 defeats by Macedonia and Italy end any remote hopes they had of reaching next summer's World Cup, but they also saw their captain Aaron Zahavi quit international football. Ripping off his armband after being booed by Israeli supporters, he was subsequently handed a one-year ban by the Israeli FA, after which he announced his retirement. There was though some positive news emanating from Italy, as Linoy Ashram became the first Israeli to win a medal in the all-round competition at a World Rhythmic Gymnastics Championships. The 18-year-old bronze win also saw her receive a £13,000 bonus from the Olympic Committee of Israel. And finally, Diego Schwartzman's hopes of becoming the first Jewish US Open winner were ended after he was beaten in the quarterfinals. His best ever performance at a Grand Slam, the 25-year-old Argentine said, There are a lot of positives I'll take away from here. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk.
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is Features Editor Fran Wolfish and Online Editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. We are going to merely skim over the front page because there are a couple of stories on there. We've got the 100 Reasons to Remember, which is an image of several Shoah survivors, around 100 to be precise, who we will hear a little more about a little later on in this programme when we speak to Gina Turgel and who you've just heard about in the news with Viv. And the other story is Shul hosts Imam who called for jihad against Jews. Not very much that three Jews around a load of microphones should probably say about that, so we'll let you read that in your own time. But let's have a look inside the paper. And the first story we're going to look at this week, Fran, is about members of the army and, uh, well, why are they in there? I'll let you tell this story. Well, yes, four members of the army were actually arrested under the Terrorism Act this week on suspicion of being members of a banned neo-Nazi group called National Action. Obviously, this isn't very good publicity at all for the British Army. We kind of tend to think of our serving officers as people who are there to not only protect our nation, but who also uphold the values of Britain. And that includes being multicultural and tolerant. And you'd think not being a member of a band, any band group, let alone a neo-Nazi group. So it was a national story and it has been quite shocking, actually, to learn that this has happened. But yes, it is an isolated case. An isolated case that's been confirmed by an interview that you did, Jack, with Colonel Richard Kemp, I believe. Yeah, Colonel Richard Kemp, he was the commander of forces in Afghanistan and he quit the army in 2006. And he has basically come out and said that this was an isolated case. And the fact that they have been arrested and that they've been dealt with shows how seriously the army takes them. So he's very keen to show that the army is not kind of riddled with extremists or anything like that. This is a very rare instance of extremism and authorities have come down very hard on it. Certainly appears so. All right, well, let's move on from that. And we look now at the Sukkot voting clash. What's this? Yeah, well, actually, one in 10 voters might be forced to stay away from the voting polls. Voters for what, sorry? It's a by-election scheduled by Hartsmere Council, but they've chosen the first day of Sukkot. And for Jews who are observant, they won't be able to go down to the polls and mark a cross on their ballot papers. They can, of course, you could argue, have a postal vote or have a proxy vote that can be arranged. But essentially, it is inconvenient. You know, how many people sort of forget to do that in advance? You know, if people want to be able to vote, the fact is they're not going to be able to. And it is significant because this particular ward has an 11% Jewish population. So that's potentially, okay, they're not all observant, you could argue, but there is a good percentage there that may not be able to vote. And I think what it also shows really is that there is a wider malaise in society that these kind of things aren't really taken into consideration. For example, when you go to university, universities don't really check when religious days are for examinations. And I remember when I was at university, a number of people had clashes with religious festivals on their exams and it was very problematic. So when it comes to elections, it's not just about going down to the voting station and putting your cross in the box. You know, there's a very politically active community and they like to get involved, they like to campaign. We've had many people standing as candidates and, you know, this kind of clash really does stunt the political activity of the community. Have the council said anything in response to this? 
leader of the council, Morris Bright, who's actually Jewish himself, has expressed regret and disappointment over this clash. Unfortunately, the basic fact is the council did not check religious days, quote unquote, on their calendar. And so they weren't able to avoid this clash. Also, because it's a by-election, I believe it has to be done within a set number of days. And there just simply aren't enough days left. They try to sort of reschedule it for the following Thursday. And that's also Yom Tov. So regrettably, there is this clash. And we have to sort of find a way around it. Well, I think that once in a while we just have to recognise that unfortunately the Jewish calendar does clash with the secular calendar. Another instance that springs to mind straight away is that a couple of years back when the London Marathon happened to coincide with Pesach for that year. I don't believe there's any malice behind it. I don't think any of us do. It's just a bit unfortunate. But hopefully one thing that we can pin our hopes on and look at as some positive news instead is that I believe the X Factor this year has a Jewish contestant amongst their midst. Yes, well, hopefully we always get one and we do this time. Well, the um, Bake Off's got one, the X Factor might as well. Yes, and they do. If you will watching the first episode on Saturday, you'll notice Joel and Jack and Joel Fischel of that group is Jewish. He's one of ours. He grew up in Finchley. He's a nice Mazzotti lad. He was actually a former Noam leader and he is a beatboxing wizard, which brings us nicely to Sharon Osborne's comment that he looks a lot like Harry Potter, which he kind of does. And he's great at beatboxing and guitar playing and singing. And he was absolutely lovely to chat to this week. So you actually had the chance to chat to him yourself then, did you? Yes, I did. We spent about 20 minutes talking about his audition on the show. Interestingly, he's a bright boy as well. He went to Oxford University. So I happened to ask him, which was, you know, which was worse, facing Simon Cowell or your Oxford interview? And without a doubt, he said, hands down, the X Factor. But he didn't look nervous, actually, despite the overwhelming and terrifying nerves that he says that he had. They were absolutely brilliant with their Ed Sheeran mashup. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of these lads. Well, Stacey Solomon is now on Loose Women, so who knows what's possible for future Jewish X Factor contestants. Good luck to him, I'm quite sure. Now, one of the other stories that we've got a chance to have a look at is the Munich Massacre. Something to do with a memorial for the Munich Massacre. Yes. 45 years ago, the Munich Massacre took place where 11 Israeli athletes were murdered in Germany during the Olympics. And this week, the German and Israeli presidents opened a memorial in Munich in memory of those who were murdered. And this is a very poignant moment. There's a, a lovely picture in the paper, page 18 this week, of President Reuven Rivlin embracing his German counterpart. It's amazing what can change in a small period of time relatively. It is true, actually. When you think back to what happened in Germany, obviously at the time of the Olympics, and let us, of course, not forget the history around 70 years ago of what happened in Germany, it is nice to think that in this day and age that we are lucky enough to live in, despite all of the troubles that we find in the world, we now see an image where the Israeli and German presidents embrace each other and greet each other in that way somehow seems quite comforting. Well, memorials are always a touchy subject. And I think with the Olympics, particularly so because it's an international event and there are you know nearly 200 countries that participate. So there was always going to be one or two that disagreed with any kind of official memorial. So I think that this is important that the German and Israeli presidents opened this together. It wasn't an Olympic thing. It was a national thing. And it is late, but I guess better late than never. 
And so say all of us. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget, though, that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've been hearing, an event was held last weekend to give 100 Holocaust survivors the chance to see the blueprints for the new Holocaust memorial to be built next to the Palace of Westminster. Other attendees included broadcaster Natasha Kaplinsky and Karen Pollock, the chief executive of the Holocaust Educational Trust. Survivor Gina Turgel was also there, and our very own Tony Honigberg has been speaking to Gina to get her thoughts. Tony started by asking Gina to tell us how she felt when she learned about the memorial being built in the first place. Well, I must tell you, I was really thrilled and so surprised. First of all, I must really thank Her Majesty the Queen that her country is going to produce a loud to build the Holocaust Memorial. This is the most wonderful thing. I don't see if you see my point, but this is something which I felt tears came to my eyes. Because to other countries, whatever they do, but England, I love England, and it's wonderful because you see the they are the liberators of the camp where I happen to be. And, of course, my husband was born in England and was seven in the British Army, the British Intelligence Corps. And so I felt so, so really happy that there's going to be one. And it's only that they have got permission and so on. And it's going to be not only for our generation, but for generations to come, which is of great importance. Can you tell us a bit about the conference itself that took place this week? Because you were there amongst about 100 other of your fellow survivors. There were a lot of people there, and everyone was talking. And, of course, everyone wants to say something. But... And everybody's got their own ideas. And I'm sure at the end, it will be chosen by a very few, most probably. I was very, very happy to see Natasha Kaplinsky. She was really a very, very good friend of mine. And I'm just delighted. She's doing wonderful work. And so are the few. But she really put her hand, of course, Canon Pollock, which is, they were talking as well, and it's, um, it's wonderful, wonderful that this role in now, and eventually is going to be there. Whatever format it takes, we don't know, but the fact is that it's going to be, whether today or tomorrow, but it's there so that people see, and hopefully it will build up some sort of feeling and teach others and aim for peace. Do you take comfort in the knowledge that with this new memorial being built, there's probably less chance of the Holocaust ever being forgotten? It should never be forgotten. Never, never. Whatever generation it is. Therefore, it's so important that a monument like that and people should talk about it. I've written a book, it should never be forgotten. It's very little. 
I mean, it's very, very condensed. But you don't realize how important it is. It's important for my children, for you children, for anybody's children. It's life at hand. It's something, it's a different, different life altogether. It's a torture. It's hatred, killing, innocent people. Can you imagine six million people, how much they could contribute to the society of today? How much talent in every profession, whether medicine, whether teaching, whether playing, music, whatever, art, so much talent was there. And not to mention their subsequent families as well, of course. And families, of course. No one can understand that. You've got to think deeper and deeper. That is not just a Holocaust survivor monument to remind people. It's of importance. And therefore, I feel very grateful to the government and Her Majesty said, a country that allowing to do that and helping us to fulfill our wishes in order to keep peace in the world. And people that I hope they will build some sort of bridges, regardless the religion, regardless the color. What are the key elements of this memorial and education center? What would you like to see as part of it? I would like to see some books some sort of flashback, the life in the camp, and the starvation and the heaps of bodies which you, which I've seen in Belson, how much I like to portray. It is impossible for any human being to understand and to, to make yourself a, like a vision of bodies. Can you imagine heaps like a house and skeletons could see the bodies, their bones. You could not distinguish whether they were men or women. Walking skeletons. Children bodies. You see the British troops when they arrived in Belson, some of the officers were taken ill. And eventually the doctor came and he examined them. They put the needles in their thighs. They couldn't feel it. They had a shock, what they've seen. How human people could torture others, other human beings to that extent, starving them, torture them. And this, I like to see one of those pictures there, and they should be really showing what happened. It doesn't matter what nationality one is, but everybody should see it. There are some deniers, but they can't deny me. So what would you say to the deniers? They're stupid. How on earth could anyone make up stories? If I say I live through, and thank God I am here to be able to talk about it, I would tell him, listen, give yourself a knock on your head and think. 
It happened, unfortunately, not only to Jewish people. It happened to other you know, Christian people, other nationalities. People were suffering. But most of all, were unfortunately Jewish people. Children. We were segregated women for a transfer. That just tell you a fragment. My nephew, three and a half years old, one of my nephews, happened to that was women only, and he was standing in front of me with his mother, and my mother next to me, my two sisters. And he, my sister, have taken some sweets out of her pocket to give it to him. And he turned around to her, Mommy, you eat the sweets and don't worry. When the Germans want to shoot me, he will lay down and he will pretend that he's dead. Now, can you imagine a child of three and a half years old to say that? He was the most beautiful child. I've got beautiful grandchildren, great-grandchildren, but he was something special. Blonde and blue eyes, sapphire blue eyes. And I often wonder, maybe the Germans had pity on him, maybe just let him stay alive. But they, oh, that was the very first transport to Auschwitz, straight to the guest chamber. Can you imagine the thought a child like that goes into it? It's, it's depressing. And people should learn about it and should never, never, never allow it to happen again to anybody. Survivor Gina Turgle speaking to Tony Honigberg there, giving us her reaction to the potential blueprints for the memorial to be built next to the Palace of Westminster. Thank you very much indeed to her and especially for reliving that incredible story of survival and just really, really very touching words. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff, and founder of Laurel Leaf Networking, Laurel Alpa. They will be discussing the High Holy Days. Plus, you'll hear what happened when I had the good fortune to go along to the Nightingale House Care Home in South London to go and talk to them about their new Apples and Honey Nursery School. Yep, you heard me right. They've opened up a nursery school in the grounds of the care home and the residents there help out in the nursery school. It's all really rather lovely, so you'll hear that a little later on in the programme. But first... I think that we can all say that we know someone in our lives who has been touched by cancer in one way or another. And especially in the Jewish world, the genetics that we have means that some are more susceptible to the disease than others. Well, a new exhibition has been created by photographer David Scheinman, and it's called The Venus Project. It is designed to highlight hereditary cancers. Our very own arts editor, Kate Fulton, has been speaking to David to find out more for us. Kate. That's right, Phil. David's with me now. David, how is your work connected with the project? Well, I was first approached by Tamar Arnon, who I've known for many, many years. And the BRCA1 and 2 gene has been very prevalent in their family. And many of the sisters are all carriers and the mother suffered from uh, breast cancer many years earlier and happily is still alive and still with us. 
And they began to notice in their family anecdotally that they were very affected by something that they didn't understand medically was actually hereditary till many years later. In fact, I think it was the early 90s that when they first identified the gene. Anyway, it was so powerful in their family. And Tamar Arnon is a, a curator in the art world, the contemporary art world, and has been doing a number of shows for good charity causes. And by bringing contemporary art into a charity fundraising arena. She had the idea to approach me to produce a set of pictures. And that's all it was, a completely open brief to somehow create a conversation piece, if you like, for the cause. I've been having a look at some of these pictures. And as Phil said, it's called the Venus Project. And Venus was some sort of goddess of beauty and fertility. I think looking at them, they're extraordinary, sort of water-based. What was it about the water that drew you in? So the Venus Project comes, really the inspiration is from Botticelli's painting for the Venus Rising or the Birth of Venus. The one on the shell uh, that people often have on posters. And that's it, that's it. And in a way, almost the sort of first pin-up, if you like, and became a, an archetypal, stereotypical version of what beauty is, in a sense, skin deep, very beautiful, young, innocent, almost virginal kind of female figure in this environment. And what... I wanted to do was to take the idea of beauty and take it on into something that was altogether much more emotionally complex and difficult. So for me, beauty is really, in the case of this project, it's the negotiation between life and death. Uh, it's a very tender, contradictory, beautiful, really based on the hope and the inspiration, if you like. So that's where the idea of the Venus Project came. And also the classic pose is the hand on the breast. It's the modesty pose, so everything is covered up. It almost looks maternal, though. And I just um, wondered if that had something to do with it. When women are often pregnant and they have mm, a bump, they often sort of feel the need to hold, hold protect the bump. And it yeah. looks more like that as well as the Venus pose. Well, it's a kind of literal thing because it, it's the breasts and the ovaries that are most affected. And so in a sense, it draws attention to those areas. Visually, it really speaks directly to the idea. It also motivated everybody in the photographs at one point or other. They tried that pose out. It's not all over the exhibition, but it's a theme that does come up. So that, were they underwater? Or did you actually... Yes, now they're water. Oh, yes. I, yes. I was conflating yes. issues there. Yeah, yeah, yeah carry no. on. Well, so I'd been taking photographs in my own personal work. I started off with my kids actually photographing them, just playing in the swimming pool. And I started to see that they almost became alter egos or different characters. Water is something that's very cathartic, it's very liberating. There's the whole sense of gravity and floating and space changes and people are very different. And I thought this is an alternative to a photographic studio in a way. And that somehow, because people move and express themselves in completely different ways, that this would become a great metaphor for human experience. Gosh, I'm talking like an artist, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> and you That's see nonsense. yourself as an artist. I mean, your yeah. work is very artistic. Right. It's not just sort of smiley bar mitzvah shots. No, definitely not. I can only call myself an artist in the last few years, really. I worked commercially for many, many years. But the kind of commercial work I did, theatre posters, film posters, album covers, were very creative or arty in their own way. Very overproduced, technical, complex, sometimes digital computer works. And as that career began to subside, I, my interest continued in photography and I began to just express myself in a much more pure form. 
producing bodies of work, different series, selling through galleries and interior designers and collectors and that kind of thing. And were you trained? What's the traditional route or is the one to become well, a photographer? Well, gosh, the traditional route would have been you became somebody's assistant. I went to the London, what is now the London Institute, was then the London College of Printing and did a degree in photography, film and television. One of probably only two, maybe three in the, in the country at that time. I, I guess there must be tens of them now. Many, many places do media studies and all types of photography courses. I think academic training, which would have set me apart going forward into my career, from smudgers, as they were called, and their assistants who just they knew the gear, they knew the cameras, they, they just got out there and they took the photographs. Much more the kind of Bailey era of just get up and go and take pictures. And you were as good as the access you had to the subjects you photographed. And that's how it was. I think in the 70s, 80s, it began to be a much more academic pursuit. And it certainly was for me. And how have you, how's your work evolved over the years? Well, photography is a journey. And I think we can all relate to the fact that with each passing decade, our circumstances, life, family, jobs, how we see ourselves in the world, all of that changes and photography has done with me. It's like a companion. And as I grow up, I hopefully <laughs> it grows up with me. So do you always have your camera with you? I mean, I'm not looking to see whether you've got it now, but do you, do you, do you always feel the need or do you make notes? Like you know, um, people? My photography was generally staged photography rather than court or photojournalistic or reportage. So it's planned and I turn out with the gear and I, I make the images. They say the best camera in the world is the one you have in your pocket. And I have to say iPhones these days do produce some extraordinary pictures. I'm always diarising or note-taking on my uh, iPhone. I have made some up from there into final works. So. But going back to the exhibition, are these works for sale or do you pay to go in? The point of the evening and also the days that the exhibition is on is to raise as much money and awareness for the cause because one of the things about the BRCA genes and the fact that it does affect at a very much higher incident, it does affect Jewish people, is to get people to know and understand that it's there and it's been terribly stigmatised. People carry shame and fear with this. And yet there are communities and support organisations out there to help. And so really it raises the awareness and the discourse and will help many people. Screening early and when it's in families, if it happens younger and younger with each subsequent generation, it can be caught. And the earlier you catch anything like this, the more that can be done. And also, of course, there's something many people who are gene carriers may choose elective surgery. Information because, about that will yeah. be at the exhibition, presumably. Lots of information. So the way we raise money is through the book that we're selling. We are selling prints off the wall. We don't expect to sell so much because the subject matter is sometimes very personal and we photograph 10 people who are carriers of the gene. We've done portraits and interviews and then there's the photographs of them in, in the water. One or two of them I think are saleable but mostly the, the income has been coming from the books and they are sold £25 in a paperback up to £100 with a limited edition print. Amazing. This show seems to be full of people who are just taking everyday ideas and putting a different spin on them. And that's one amazing example of that. Photographer David Scheiman talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there. Thank you very much indeed for that. And if you would like the details of the exhibition, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find a link. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Remember, you can always tune in to the live stream of the Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. And if you want to watch it, you go to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views, where you'll also be able to comment on any of the other stories featured in the programme. You can also contact us via Twitter. 
Our address is simply at JewishViewsUK or you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk and don't forget we absolutely love to hear your thoughts so please do feel free to get in contact with us. Okay, now it's time to find out what happened when I went along to the new Apples and Honey Nursery School that's been opened in the grounds of the Nightingale House Care Home in South London. Here's what happened. Well, they say that your school days are supposed to be the best of your life. And what better way to start your school life than a nursery school set right in the heart of the grounds of Nightingale House Care Home? I am currently in the activities room. And as I look around, I can see the most phenomenal facilities here. We've got a kitchen to the left of me. We've got a pottery area to the right. And then in the middle, there's computer facilities. And it looks like some sort of music setup going on as well in the middle, as well as needlework and all sorts of different things. And the activities room that I'm talking about is actually for the residents of the Nightingale Care Home. And I'm joined now by Director of Care Services, Simon Pizzizi. Thank you very much, Simon, for speaking to us. Can you just tell us a bit about the setup and what makes Nightingale House stand out from other care homes, would you say? First of all, Nightingale House is very different in the sense that we are one of the largest single-site care homes in the UK, 215 beds on one side. And also, the residents who come to us are coming to us at their later advanced stages in life. So our average age of admission is 90, for example, and 10% of our residents are over the age of 100. So in terms of the care that we deliver, we actually have to think about activities in a completely different way. And we also have to think about integration and stimulating residents to have a meaningful day-to-day life also in a very different way. And hence the importance of having a nursery on site where young children can actually come in and provide a different type of activities that we can normally provide for our residents and providing that human interaction and also just being able to play together and do certain things which are intergenerational. Now I know this is a fairly new concept about introducing the nursery school into the grounds of the care home but how would you say that you've noticed a difference in the residents so far since the introduction of the nursery? I can give an example whereby When we started with the mother-toddler group, there are a group of residents who used to come in and join. Initially, we would remind them and tell them about the mother-toddler group happening on Monday. And after a while, they were actually just making it a point that they get up in the morning, they tell staff, I've got somewhere to go, I want to have my breakfast at this time. And then they're aiming and going straight to where (laughs) this activity was happening. So it actually is something that actually transformed the way they were planning their week, the way they were planning and looking forward to that. Again, the same residents, I was talking to somebody the day before yesterday and they were saying, oh, some of the residents just turned up at the nursery and they just wanted to engage and interact and they actually just went in, uh, sat down and just, you know, had a really good time. This is something which has just become a natural part of the daily activities and for some residents just being able to participate by seeing children doing activities or at least by just actually joining in is actually making a big difference to them. Well let's go find out exactly what kind of difference we are talking about. I'm making my way across the activity room that I've just spoken about and we're going to get the chance to speak to one of those residents alongside his daughter. We've got Walter Goldstein and Kath Goldstein Now, Kath, let's start off with you. Perhaps would you just tell us a bit about your father's involvement with this new nursery school? What exactly does he do with it? Okay, so occasionally 
I think weekly actually, toddlers have been coming in with, with their parents and they've been sitting with the older residents and my dad's been, been part of that. It's quite a long time that they can be together so and they sing songs together, they interact, they try and play with the older people, some of the older people join in with the songs and get involved and it's really lovely and my dad loves children so it's ideal for him. Well, I understand that, Walter, that some of the lovely ceramics that we've got in the table in front of me here were designed by you. Have you always had an interest in ceramics? Are you naturally quite a creative individual? I think I'm a creative individual, but I haven't done any of this before in my life. I was a teacher, and I worked with children with emotional and learning problems, so I had to learn a lot of skills. And how would you say that your teaching skills are being put to use now from those years of working with children in the past? What would you say that you bring to the new children that have joined the nursery school here at Nightingale? Well, that's a huge question. I mean, you work with children and you have an input. I have an input. But I have no idea what the final development of that child is and what effect it has on its life. But it's an important effect because those years are so important in a child's life. Well, I'm sure that whatever input you have makes a massive difference, and bravo, sir. Thank you very much indeed. And now let's sort of shuffle along a little bit as we make our way to outside. We actually make our way to the grounds of the new nursery school, and I'm joined by Judith Ishhorovitz, who is the director of the new nursery school. Is that right, Judith? Um, yes, taking the title principal, we're in the process of becoming a social enterprise community interest company, uh, which stage I will become a director. I see. Okay, so for now then, as principal, and obviously as being responsible for the new nursery school here at Nightingale, can you believe it's finally happened? Uh, I just can't believe it. We have such a dream. We've been planning it for so many years, and to actually see it in reality, to have the children here, to watch them interacting with the residents who have become quite close friends already in this short time, it's just unbelievable. It's amazing. So how long has this been in the planning for then? The very first time I approached Nightingale was some time ago when the previous chief executive was here but then various things happen in life as they do and I returned and asked again in about about three years ago and we could not have had a warmer welcome. Nightingale have been fantastic, they've really opened their arms out to us, helped us to make the place happen, they have offered us a beautiful space. It used to be the premises workshop and they've actually relocated the premises workshop and helped us to design purpose-built space for the children with a beautiful outside area where we can have free flow and it's also inclusive and accessible for residents who do wish to visit. Though obviously it's a limited space so most of our activities are happening in the home. Well, it's an extraordinary space, as you rightly identify. I'm looking around at it now and I can see that sort of we're in the grounds just behind us is the nursery school and we've just walked past an aviary, a rabbit hutch, so there's animals on site as well. Apart from the obvious difference to most nursery schools in the sense that obviously it's in the grounds of a care home, what would you say that the major difference is between apples and honey and most other nursery schools? Many nursery schools like to visit care homes. They like to develop relationships as much as they can but they can only do it occasionally. We used to visit from my other nursery in Wimbledon Apples and Honey. We used to come for all the Hagim, all the festivals. We would be maybe once every half term and then we'd leave 
and somehow you felt it was incomplete business. It's just struck us, why aren't we here every day? We can have these strong relationships. The children are bonding. Some of the residents here don't have family, they haven't had children, and here they're adopted by, they become grannies, they can adopt little ones, they create relationships. In fact, we had a lovely story just from last week. I had a text from a, a family who've got a baby who said, we're on holiday, can I have the surnames of two of the residents? So I sent those surnames to them and they sent postcards to them. And I was walking past and one of the residents grabbed me face said, look what I've got. And she showed me this postcard and not having children of her own. This was a marvellous thing. Here she was getting a postcard from the seaside. And we then, the following Monday, at our weekly baby and toddler group, created sand pictures and sang songs about the seaside. And the residents were putting glue on paper. And the little children who were coming with their childminders and nannies and parents and grandparents were sitting there sprinkling the sand on and creating these pictures. All of this had grown out of the baby and toddler group, the relationships that were growing between the residents and the families. Well, congratulations on a frankly extraordinary and marvellous setup you've got here. And it almost makes me frustrated that I'm at neither at the beginning of life or in later life, because sadly I won't benefit from any of the services they provide here. But hopefully, who knows, in several decades' time, with a little bit of luck. All the same, amazing. Congratulations. Do you know, I can truthfully say that was the most fun I think I've had for a long, long time here on The Jewish Views. I absolutely love what I do. Week in, week out, I get the chance to meet people, extraordinary people at that, and I love every minute of it. But that really was a tremendous amount of fun to see this new concept virtually in front of me, the way that the nursery school pupils, and just for the record, I should highlight as well that one thing that isn't clear from that report is that the nursery pupils, it doesn't matter if they're Jewish or not, it is absolutely open to everyone from all faiths, all backgrounds, but they just work so so harmoniously, so innocently alongside the residents of the care home who in turn get involved with helping the children and looking after them and ultimately bringing them up in the early years of their life. Absolutely extraordinary work. And if you'd like to see some photos of that, please do head to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that, ordinarily, you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today are founder of the Laurel Leaf Networking Group, Laurel Alper, and Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. And we thought today we'd talk about the High Holy Days, it's fairly obvious the reasons why, but the question is, what do the High Holy Days mean to us as Jews in 2017, especially as we live in an age where many people turn their backs on religion? Laurel, let's start with you. How important are the High Holy Days to you personally? They're very important. I think they give you a sense of belonging and you get to catch up with everyone that you don't necessarily see all of the time. So they mean a lot. And how about you? Oh, sorry, I was intensely listening. Um, <laughs> I think they're still very important. I mean, I mean, it's the only time that the West London Synagogue is jam-packed and you can't actually, you know, just walk in for a seat. It's, so it's marvellous to see it full. And I think people still take it seriously. I don't know to what extent that they take the whole idea of atonement and... 
But I do still think it's an occasion that people still respect and want to but be part of. But should they of. take it seriously if they only come twice a year? Well, that's for them, isn't it, really? I mean, I, I think it's... I love it. It's a great time for me. It's a time of great purpose. And, you know, I tend to sort of this month look at all the people I've harmed throughout the year and, and see where I can possibly make amends if they're due. So that when I go, when it's Yom Kippur, for example, I feel that I've done my bit with humans and now I can go before God, however you perceive God to be, with a kind of clearer conscience. And but you go to synagogue every week, probably. No, no, quite a lot. Yes, I do. But I think that although they don't attend regularly, it's quite an important time for them. Now, whether that means that the whole kind of High Holy Days is actually just a kind of ritual, a nothingness, a ritual that's of no purpose except to bring people who don't go to synagogue regularly together, I don't know, but I think it has its purpose for them. I, I, I go to shul every week, or almost every week, not for any religious benefit. I, I like going. I love the community atmosphere. I, I mm. see a lot of my friends every week. When it comes to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it feels something special. It feels mm. more than that. Mm. It's the end of, an, end of a year. It's the beginning of a new year. Do I atone on Yom Kippur? Probably not. Yeah, I say the prayers, but does it mean much to me? I'm not sure about that, whether well, it does go, or not. I don't go every week to synagogue. But on the High Holy Days, when I go, I think it does help you reconnect. Yeah. It does. And and you do have a sense of atonement, especially when you see more religious people with plimsolls. And yeah. It, yeah. it just triggers memories, you know, as I had as a child, seeing all. And you, yeah. have, you, you definitely understand those holidays more than maybe other festivals like yeah. Shavuos or something, which isn't... Do, do you know what I, I mean? Do. Yeah, I agree. You have a very good point. But I let me give you an example. I have a sister who is completely irreligious. She never goes to synagogue. All her children have, have married out. She still is says she's Jewish, and her husband actually had an orthodox conversion because he wasn't Jewish originally. But they keep absolutely nothing. And yet, on Yom Kippur, they both fast. They don't go to synagogue, but they fast. No, isn't that a bit ridiculous? I've come across a number of people like that in, in the profession that, that we are in, in the, the, the media and entertainment industry, who are Jewish and keep nothing but on Yom Kippur they fast and, and go to shul. They go to shul and fast and, and say the prayers because I think it just maybe makes them feel better. Like, like James said, how, you know, you How far do you take maybe. that as well? Because you could say, you know, there are Jewish people that won't eat anything on kosher mm. tray at home, but they would go and eat something that they Prong wouldn't eat. Outside, yes, yes, or lobster or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. And so you could, I think there's a level that everyone has, to, everyone has to find their own level. Yeah. And, it, and I, I think also as, as Jewish people, we, we are quite, a, in, in at, at a certain level, we are quite accepting of others that no. do, that Laurel said, you know, we'll keep a kosher home, but we'll go out and eat, yeah. eat treif. Yeah. But we, we sort of accept that, don't we? You know, we've got different levels. Well, yeah, of, that again is, I, again, I've got an example of it. I've got a cousin who lives in America and she calls herself deeply religious and she keeps a strictly kosher house and she gets furious if you wash up the milchaka plates in the wrong sink and vice versa. And yet she, when she goes out for a meal in a restaurant, will order lobster. 
Yeah, I know. It's I, I, I can't get my head around that mm. one. Either. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I don't need all that stuff out. But. So, you see, no, I don't think it's ridiculous. Sorry, sorry, Clive. Yeah, by <laughs> all means. I, but no, I don't think it's ridiculous. I think that I'm. You can't. One shouldn't be. Can't be the judge and jury. Yeah. That religion is, and your feelings are a personal thing. And there mm. are just some things you, because you could say, well, why don't we, including you, go and live in Israel and and take it to the next level? Yeah. yeah. How, how far mm. do you take that? that point of view what about the effects on the next generation if we're not showing them the right path that judaism takes how will it affect them but you can still show the right path and be a good jew or whatever even if you say you keep a kosher home but then only eat lobster i mean that that's you making your own peace with your religion Mm. well i guess that's in one way i guess that's the doctrine that our parents have given us to make our own free will or that god has given us to make our own free choices to it's go weird, back to the it? synagogue, yeah, uh, it, no. it, it came to me just this idea that, I, and it kind of equates with, you know, my sister's a vicar in the Church of Wales and she marries people, obviously. She said what always intrigues her is that these people want to get married in church for no earthly reason other than it's a tradition and the wedding photographs look nice. Well, I can't understand that. Well, I agree with you, it's the same thing. Yeah, so it, it's, it's exactly kind of, the same thing. Well, what, somebody wanting to get married in church because they they're Christian? Go. Not even they're not practicing at all. So they're, they're not going to. They don't want to get married for the religious reason. No, it's not just at all. that you've got a nice background. But if yeah. you actually spoke to them, they probably somewhere in them. They do. They probably celebrated Christmas. Yeah. They've gone to churches in their in their time. Well, she, I think my, well, my sister has to cancel them before I they. Think, yeah. I think and also. She, I said her impression is that they're just non-practicing and really have no clear understanding and, and i think that has the same thing with the people be, the people the people that go to shore three times a year it's, they're it's, non-practicing it's but that's people three who behave, times a year people who behave like that is pure superstition because they remember their parents their grandparents their great-grandparents it's who you are and where you come from where you come from whether you go to synagogue you go to church whatever yeah. it, it, it's just who you are it's the essence of you is unless it, you've totally banished it from your life yeah. is it superstition or tradition yeah. well to come back to my sister she has banished it totally from her life she probably hasn't been inside a synagogue since she got married Yeah. so why fast on Yom Kippur and not even go to the synagogue. Maybe it's, it's her just token a token gesture. Token, yeah. token gesture of hanging of, on to being Jewish. Of, of that is who she is yeah. at the end of the day. And maybe she'll, as, yeah. you know, sometimes as we get older, we become more religious. Yeah. It won't happen to me. People but. do. No, people do, though. You see that, don't you? It, people yeah. do really become does, more yeah. religious. And that's more sort of, of hedging your bets yeah. a bit, I think. I think you yeah. feel you're getting closer to God yeah. as you get older. Yeah. If but you believe is there something to be said for we kind of judge them by what they appear to do and yet we have no idea what their internal lives are like you know in a sense like your sister could have a wonderful i'm not saying she does or doesn't but none of us know what relationship each other has with god whatever you perceive god to be and so you know we could look at something look she only goes to shul yom kippur and yet she's got a a really intimate Mm. kind of relationship with the god of on, her understanding on that on that one day if nothing else yeah, yeah. And, and that she doesn't you know but isn't there a sort of arrogance in going to synagogue on yom kippur and fasting and saying now god has forgiven me for all the bad things i've done in the past year yeah and then 
They go home and they have a beautiful meal and they go back to doing exactly as they did before. Is that, is that better to do that than not do it at all? Mm. It's like it's the Catholic confession, the coin, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, which we see a lot of. Yeah, they're going, know, they go to confession every once a year or whatever and they're supposed to go every week and, you know, they go in and they literally do get forgiven there and then. So yeah. And some people do go again. every week and get forgiven yeah. and then go straight out and, and do, do the, the same, same thing, thing again. Yeah, because the psyche hasn't changed. It's still, in both cases, to me, perhaps I'm being extremely intolerant, but it does seem to me an absolute, it's absolutely ridiculous. If you really believe in your religion, you do try to do, you can never succeed in doing it because we're all human beings Mm. and we all have weaknesses Mm. and we all go on making the same mistakes all our lives. But we all go on believing if you're really believe in your religion, whether it's Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever, and you say you're going to do the right things, then you try to do them and you very often fail. But if you are one of those people who goes to synagogue once or twice a year and thinks that you're then forgiven for all your... It, it's just an arrogance. But do they really think they're forgiven, I wonder? Maybe inwardly they feel forgiven, and maybe that's not such a bad thing either. If they Inwardly, if they feel forgiven and lifted, maybe it's not such a bad thing. Maybe they're not going Or maybe it's just guilt. To be forgiven. They're just going going for all the other reasons. Because they're Jewish. Because they're Jewish. And the bigger question is, what does it mean to be Jewish? Well, that's very important, and you as a convert would know that. Yeah. Uh, and part and parcel of it is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I mean, what, about Sukkot, really... what about Sukkot and Simchat Torah then? I Do loved you... all that. The, yeah, that's another yeah, aspect. I... The, the High I Holy Days Simchat over that Torah one month with period. The, the scroll being. I love it. It thrills me. Uh, and I love building a sukkah. So, and, you and know. Do you, do you get uplifted you, with that's that? That's because you are truly, truly yeah. religious though, isn't it? I don't know. I just, I think I found with Judaism to be, for me, it really touches me in mm. all my ways, you know, in my walking, living life. I mean, Laura says you go, you go Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, for sure. Not for the last few years. Oh, you it has okay. been, no, it has been. And, and I could go. And actually, funnily enough, I feel more like going now, maybe as I'm getting older, than I, I, I did when I was younger. But that's partly because I went to a synagogue where we should have been welcomed and we weren't welcomed mm, as children. That doesn't mm. help. Um, and so I definitely was, I mean, I was lively and mm. you can't sit there for three hours when you're 12, no. 13, 14. No. Well, maybe that's I the difference, because where I grew up, we, they they did specifically children's services they on those days. But, but it, it was fun services. And I'm going back a number of years. I'm, I'm a bit older than a lot of people, rather other than Clyde, mm. but um, <laughs> but and, and they made it fun even in those days. It was fun to go, and well, we enjoyed going. Well, I can't going. remember about the children's services because that just seems so. I just I know they did it. Yeah. I'm talking about more as like a teenager, mm. 14, yeah. 15, 16, and you're actually. And I think that they were silly to be like that. They mm. would have dragon yeah. type well, people on the door and say shush every you know. Oh, not, well, we weren't yeah. screaming or anything. Oh, no, we then had youth services. You see, so we still had that yeah, fun services going that, on, and I, then. Then I grew into adult services, which I then hated. But you know. But they should have. I think they should have been more encouraging because then it's a place where you want to yeah. go and where you yeah. feel mm. comfortable, yeah. as opposed to. And so that's probably. That's probably why. And that's also, it. That I, I can put, understand that. Possibly building your. Well, maybe that's why I continue yeah. to yeah. go. You know. Yeah. 
And maybe, you know, that if that, that's what happens with young people, they're more inclined to stick around as they get older, aren't mm. they? Yeah. And go back, you know, build and up. And the bonds I have with those people, the kids that I grew up with, I'm still friends with them. Mm. And they were nice. all from my synagogue well, yeah. that's an important part of it. I'm afraid mm. that's where we're going to have to end the discussion because our time is up. But thank you all very much indeed. And thank you, founder of the Laurel Leaf Networking Group, Laurel Alper, and education coordinator for West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. Everybody loves a good story. And what's interesting is that Moses, the greatest leader of the Jewish people, understood that for a nation to survive, it had to become a nation of storytellers. In fact, this week's Sedra, we see a remarkable thing. See, this week we celebrated 120 years since the first Zionist Congress, the beginning of the return of the Jewish people to ancestral homeland. And of course, that connection doesn't go back simply 70 to 120 years. It goes back literally thousands of years. And of course, Moshe Rabbeinu's final addresses in the book of Devarim, book of Deuteronomy, discuss about Kitavo, when you will come into the land. And he tells them about the ceremony they're going to have to do when they bring their first fruits, when the farmer brings the produce that he has so carefully nurtured with God's help and brings it to the temple to give to the Kohen, to the priest. And you expect the prayer he's going to say is going to be all about how he's going to thank God for the, the rain and the wind that allowed him to harvest his crops. But no. What he actually says, he tells a story. He tells a story of how his father was a fugitive Aramean who went down to Egypt and lived there, became a great nation with the Egyptians that are harsh with us, so and so forth. Tells in essence the story that we tell every single year at Seder night. It's the same words we use on Seder night to our children. Because to be a Jew is to tell a story, to know where you've come from, in order to remember the past, to build the Jewish future. And part of the problem today is that many Jews don't realize where they've come from, don't understand the richness of their history, of their culture, of their observances, of their traditions. And thousands of years ago, God commanded us to always tell that story, to remind our children where they came from, to remind our children you're part of a great and glorious nation with a remarkable history, not always a pleasant history, but one filled with survival and struggle and ultimately a return to the land of Israel. We are a remarkable people with a remarkable story Never forget to tell that to your children. Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our thoughts for the week there. Thank you very much indeed to him and also to all of our guests as that is all the Jewish views we have time for. We have to thank Gina Turgel who was telling us about the new memorial to be built next to the Palace of Westminster. Thank you very much to photographer David Scheinman who was telling us about the Venus Project. Also we must thank all of the lovely staff and the residents at the Nightingale Care Home in South London for their contribution and of course to our other contributors and to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg and Sue Greenberg.
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website. It's jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen again to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.